Hey, everyone. It's Stephen Schleicher from Majorspoilers.com. Thank you for downloading and thank you for listening. This week, we've got another Conversations with Major Spoilers episode. I know the last time some of you had some uh, positive comments to say, and we're doing it again, this time with Chris Roberson. Again, the big difference this time is last time we were talking about the one-year anniversary of Monkey Brain Comics. This time, we're talking Doc Savage. It was announced uh, last week that Dynamite Entertainment had acquired the uh, the property for however long uh, to do a Doc Savage tale. And Chris Roberson is behind the wheel, and he's guiding this along. This is a fun interview that I had with Chris. He's a, always a great conversationalist. And uh, if you listen, you may get an idea of the direction of where the story is going, as well as what Doc Savage book you need to go out and find right now to get even greater insight of what's to come. It's all in this episode of Conversations with Major Spoilers. Take a listen. Chris, welcome back to the Major Spoilers podcast. So good to have you. Thanks for having me. Doc Savage, man. This is great yeah. news. I know. How excited are you about this? Um, I'm pretty jazzed. This is, you know, not only is it, um, as I keep saying, one of my last bucket list items, <laughs> things I want to work on, but it, it was at the top of my list for the longest time. Um, what, what makes Doc Savage interesting? I mean, I discovered Doc Savage when I was hmm, 15. National Public Radio was running an audio drama. They ran a whole bunch of audio dramas on Sunday nights. Was it, is it Fear K maybe? Yeah, Fear K and the Thousand-Headed Man were the two that they had. Yeah, yeah. And that got me interested in it. And then, um, oh, I was down at the Kansas State Fair, which is really odd because the Kansas State Fair just kicked off last week, the same day that uh, Dynamite made the announcement about this. Yeah, I saw you mention that on Twitter. And uh, what was weird is I was just walking through one of the bizarre areas where they have all these booths, and I saw this Doc Savage book, The Man of Bronze. And I was like, oh, I was just listening to that on the radio. I have to buy this. And so I picked it up and bought it and just loved it. And then a year later, that's when uh, Bantam started releasing the uh, the Omnibus collections. Yeah. And uh, when did you or how did you get into to Doc Savage? My my first exposure was probably newsstands in the mid to late 70s, just oh, okay. in terms of seeing the character. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, uh, the Bantam at that point was still doing just the single volume reprints. Right. Um, they, they ended up doing the, the, like doubles, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, that. I've got a copy of, uh, death and silver and was it the scared shark or something like that is bound together. Yeah. And I, I was probably, I, it's hard to pinpoint a date, but I was in middle school. Um, so 10, 11. So mm-hmm. it was a couple of years later. I'd always thought, well, that guy was cool, but I, I'd never read one of them. And I picked up a secondhand copy of Philip Jose Farmer's Doc Savage, His Apocalyptic Life. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I'm not sure why I did. I knew, I know I was already a, a fan of Farmer's stuff, mm-hmm. but not so much that I was, would compulsively buy everything that he did. Um, but something about it caught my attention. And then I just devoured the whole thing on a trip to visit my grandparents one time. Oh, cool. I have, it's, it's funny you mention that because I have sitting right here in my, to read pile, a book I bought a couple of years ago. It's a first edition of his apocalyptic life uh, that that's, I tracked down and that's uh, and got. the only edition I don't have. I have like I think at any given time I have enough copies of that book for every room in the house. Oh, uh, awesome! Because every time it, every time I would find a new uh, copy in an edition I didn't have, I would buy it. And then it just at the Meteor House just released um, an expanded. Hardcover edition. Oh, cool! Uh, just in the last few months, it hasn't been very long. Um, but anyway, you know that you know I was obsessed with farmers, Wald Newton stuff, and all that, and I think that's probably what dragged me into it. Do you do you prescribe to that to that uh, to that theory that he does in both the Tarzan, what is it, Tarzan Alive or whatever, and then the Doc Savage book? I th- I find it a really interesting thought experiment. I, I don't, you know, it's it's um, it's a fun fictional structure to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, th- there's bits and pieces of, of Wald Newton, the kind of stuff that's cropped up in my work over the years. Um, and I've actually written a few, um, Wald Newton esque stories, most notably for a series of French Wald Newton stories published by Jean-Marc Lefissier called okay. Shadow Men. Oh yeah. Excellent. Um, I think the first one I did was uh, Judex and uh, a young Kent Allard 
and Thomas and Martha Wayne, oh, wow. all of them disguised enough that you couldn't recognize exactly for infringement purposes who they were. Right. Um, but anyway, you know, starting at that point, I started picking up the uh, the Bantam reprints, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think I, as as you did, I started with Man of Bronze. Oh yeah. Um, and just I, I I just adore the character and the setup, um, and so came back to it over and over again. I even though I own the movie on DVD. Uh, <laughs> so do I. So I actually used it, to own it on VHS. It has its charms. Yeah. Um, it's not perfect. Well, but Ronnie Lee's great. And and for people that don't know about uh, the Doc Savage movie, and I know we'll maybe talk about the uh, another movie coming out soon, but um, the uh, George uh, George Powell, the yeah. guy who was in uh, the uh, the Time Machine movie from the '60s, had gotten the rights to do Doc Savage and was. By all accounts, doing it right, he had um, who was it? Not Johnny Weissmuller. It was um, Ron Ely. Ron Ron Ely yeah. uh, to play the part of Doc Savage, and everything on all counts was going really good until the studio switched hands and new uh, new owners came in, and they didn't want to have anything to do with any of the old projects that were going on, so they just axed the budget, and they were left with you know John Philip Sousa music and no promotion and <laughs> great reduction in what they were trying to accomplish in the movie and it just didn't do very well. And it was it, sad. It, it kind of falls between the stools because it's got one foot in kind of sixties camp. Right. And the other foot in that late seventies kind of pulp adventure revival thing exemplified by Rage of the Lost Art. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's the missing link between those two because it's not full on camp comedy. Right. Um, if anything, it's it's got more in common with like Richard Lester's uh, Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers, mm-hmm. um, or his uh, his Flashman movie. There was a whole like spate of like slightly tongue in cheek historical adventure stuff, and it just doesn't really work. But it's it's still fun. Oh yeah, and it you know it's got the whole thing at the end of uh, the Man of Bronze. I mean that's the movie that it's telling is. Uh, the man of bronze in that. And you know, it ends with the guy getting covered in gold and all that spoilers for people that want to check it out. Yep. Doc uh, wins. Yes, he does win in the end. Uh, he has to, because he then goes on to 181 other stories told by Lester Dent. Yep. Yep. Have you read them all? Oh God, no. Um, I've read a fair number. Um, definitely not all because it's been the, the kind of thing that I would read for pleasure um, mm-hmm. if I had a little bit of time to spare. Right. Um, because, you know, they're not all uniformly great. No, um, no, no, no. no. <laughs> and, you know, uh, didn't, didn't actually write all of them. He wrote most of them. Right. Um, I, I can't remember the exact number, but there's a, there's a few other people that were in the, in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been picking up the, um, the reprints being done it's anthony tolan's company but it's not oh yeah it's the doc savage magazine yeah where mm-hmm. they they'll they'll publish two novels along with kind of explanatory essays and, and biographical stuff and um see i've read a percentage I'd you know say. a healthy percentage but not all but um i've read uh, you know both doc savage's apocalyptic life and like uh will murray's uh writings in bronze and stuff mm-hmm. like that like over and over again. So yeah. I, I feel like I have a lot of familiarity with what's in the ones I haven't read, even if I haven't read them. Well, now, Will Murray, for people that don't know, was Dent's literary agent. Is that right? I'm, I'm, I, I, my, my impression has been that, like Murray was for Dent what Anthony Tolan uh, was for Gibson. Like, uh, these, okay. these, like, like fans and professionals who in later life became associated with you know, both personally and professionally with their idols. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think that that's how we started out. I think he started out as just a, a rabid Doc Savage fan. I see. Be- because uh, what, in- what has ended up happening is that they've gone back into the Dent archives and they found a bunch of his papers and unpublished stories and have published new stuff through that. Yeah. yeah. Many of which are sitting on my shelf. I haven't had a chance to read them yet. Cause <laughs> I've been, once I got, once I started trying to get this job, um, which I can talk about in a second. Sure. Um, I've been going back and rereading uh, the Dent stuff. And so I haven't had as much time to read later stuff. I think, I've, I think I've hit about 40 of the stories. Yeah. 40 out of the 180. 
And I do have, you know, and then we mentioned Philip Jose Farmer a little bit ago. Uh, back in the 90s, they did uh, Escape from Loki, and this was supposedly the tale of how Doc Savage and his team met up. I've got it. Turns out it's rare now. Oh, really? Because when, you know, um, my sad tale of woe is that in the mid-90s, I moved across country. I moved from Texas to San Francisco mm-hmm. and shipped all of my books by rail, Uh-oh. Um, which was a thing you did in those days. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if people do that anymore. But I went to the train station and gave them my boxes um, and then later picked them up in San Francisco. And I lived in a tiny apartment. It took me weeks, months even, to open all the boxes. And when I finally got to the last one, which I was sure was the one that contained all my pulps and my copies of Weird Heroes, uh, the Byron Price anthology and stuff like that, um, I opened it and it was instruction manuals for like this uh, industrial machinery. No, no. Um, like like 300 copies of this manual. Ugh. And that's when I realized that I had, someone else had gotten my box and I'd gotten this, you know, some factories shipment instead. And I was never able to recover it. And then I spent the next almost 20 years now trying to reconstitute the, the contents of that box. Wow. Do you, have you, so, so have you gotten Escape from Loki? I have it. So uh, that was the farmer stuff survived so that because of my filing system escape from loki was with farmer oh okay not with the pulp stuff uh-huh. um it was in storage for most of last year as we were relocating to oregon and i was i was like i'm gonna hunt down a copy of it to read in the meantime because mine is in a you know one of those shipping containers um and that, they go for a lot of money now wow i did not know that i, you know, I yeah. knew that i knew that the uh the 70s bantam books even in the uh in the eighties were going for a high price because um, I had found a used bookstore right next to a comic book store that I, that I used to frequent up in Lawrence, Kansas. And the guy was catching on that doc Savage was a big deal. And these 75 cent books were going for seventeen thirty five dollars a pop. So that's what limited my buying the, uh, the Bantam reprints uh, in the, in the eighties and early nineties. I, I had a very similar experience. I was in a dealer's room at a convention once and a guy had a big box of a bunch of the ones that I didn't have. Um, but he was selling them at co- collector prices, not at, well, as he said, reading copy prices. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, so you go from, and, and the other thing that's kind of cool about, about your story is you can see a lot of Doc Savage in Superman. So you've gone from the Man of Steel now to the Man of Bronze. Yeah. How did, how did fact, that come about? Well, just parenthetically, my... Uh, uh, the seven published issues of my run on Superman, um, I tried to fold back into Superman's backstory something of the debt that he owed to Doc Savage. Oh, really? And so um, I established that as a kid, young Clark Kent thrilled uh, to the slightly fictionalized adventures of uh, uh, Iron Monroe, the the Man of Iron. Oh, cool. Who was a um, a continuity insert character in, from the '80s that Roy Thomas came up with to replace the Golden Age Superman? Mm-hmm. Uh, Roy Thomas, but Iron Monroe was the son of, uh, of Hugo Danner, who's the, the the protagonist of Philip Wiley's Gladiator. So he had you know kind of Golden Age Superman level powers, and so quietly through a couple of minor flashbacks and scenes, I, I intimated that. Um, Iron Monroe had gone on to be this Doc Savage type um, in the 1930s and 40s. Oh, very cool. Um, And he actually shows up on panel a couple of times. But anyway, um, how it happened was, um, I guess, so a few years ago in Baltimore Comic-Con, I met Joe Rybant, who's the editor at at Dynamite. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I told him was, you know, why aren't I working for you uh, already? (laughs) Um, because they controlled nearly all the licenses I would want to work on. Oh yeah. And, um, then we started, we became really friendly. Uh, he and Allison, my wife and I, uh, spent a lot of time hanging out at different conventions and talking. And that eventually led to us talking seriously. He and I, and Nick Barucci who's the publisher at dynamite about projects. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I told them at a New York comic con several years ago was that I thought it was a real shame that with the, the nice spread of kind of, pulp and classic and golden age characters that they they did they didn't have a doc savage type they didn't have a science hero they had lots and lots of masked avengers Mm -hmm. um 
but they didn't have anybody that sat in that um, the the kind of old school science hero adventure role. And uh, I started suggesting different because at that point, I think DC had the license and they hadn't done anything with it yet. Um, so I was working to try to like fill that void with whether it's a public domain character or something that they get the license for. And uh, we came up with some interesting ideas, but uh, nothing ended up happening before I got masks and then shadow. And in the meantime, uh, DC published their version that tied into their, their first wave thing, mm-hmm. um, which I was not terribly impressed with. Um, I think that they had some talented people working on it. Um, but I think that the, the editorial decisions that they made early on about taking the original characters, but setting them in this kind of pseudo yeah. world that was a little bit pulp. I, I just, I had a real problem with that too, because the minute the spirit flips open a cell phone, yeah, it, it just, it kind of fell apart for me. And I was like, Oh, I can't get into this because part of the joy of doc Savage was the fact that he was whipping out these fantastical devices, whether it be a recording answering machine or the auto gyro, which later became a helicopter and all these things. That's what made doc Savage cool. Even to even today reading the stuff that takes place in the thirties. And you see these, you know, throwing them in a, in a modern day setting is, is rather difficult. If done wrong, I think it's possible. My, the, my, the the case that I'm making is it's possible to do it, but you have to start in the appropriate period. So what I mean by that is, um, we. So anyway, dynamite. Um, when D, uh, let me come back to that because sure, I sure, sure. Um, when it was announced last year that DC no longer had the license, uh, I think the deal on his Facebook page said mm-hmm. that he no longer had the license. I, within five seconds, was firing off emails to Dynamite, um, saying, in essence, like, I don't know if you have the license, if you're trying to get it, or if you're going to be able to, but if you do get it, I want to write it. Um, And I think I got back, like, so noted. And then the (laughs) next time I talked to them, I was like, hey, by the way, I'm really serious. And then I started getting a little bit uh, more emphatic, uh, just so that they, they really understood. And I think we were having a conference call about something else entirely. Um, it might've been code in action or something. And I said, um, no, seriously, if you get the, the doc savage license and anybody but me writes it, we're going to have a problem. Um, so bear that in mind. <laughs> and, um, I just kind of kept nagging them about it forever. Yeah. And, um, and in the spring of this year, uh, was at Emerald city in Seattle talking with Nick Berucci, who's the publisher there. And he said, so we should talk to Doc Savage. And I'm like, we should talk Doc Savage. Let's do that. Um, and then that led to me uh, going home and putting together my, my proposal. Um, because I felt very strongly that, that you had to root the character in the 30s and 40s. Right. Um, uh, but at the same time, there was, there was a desire on the part of Dynamite to also do something that, that was more contemporary. Um, and it struck me that, like, one of the problems I have with taking Doc and the Fabulous Five out of 1933 to 1949 is that the way they were, con- they were constituted works in that setting. But if you push it too far out of that setting, there's a little bit of, like, you know, it's not a terribly uh, diverse lineup of folks. Um, it's, it's six guys. Um, six white guys all about the same age who have similar backgrounds and, and slightly different personalities. Right. Uh, you get a lot of good creative friction from Monk and Ham, mm-hmm. but I find particularly in later adaptations, um, people often have difficulty figuring out what to have Rennie and Johnny and long Tom do. Right. Um, it's, it's, they're just kind of, you know, they, they, they tend to just kind of clutter the stage and Dent was great at like, giving all of them business to attend to. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he also would do entire novels in which not all six of them appeared. Right. It'd, be, it'd be Doc and Rennie or Doc and Monk and Ham or Doc and Patricia. And maybe one of the two of the other guys would pop up. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so what I proposed was let's start in 1933, do it pure Lester Dent style. Um, and then, kind of roll the clock forward every few issues and see what happened to Doc and company 
after 1949. Um, so are they going to are they going to age then? Are we going to see an 85 year old Doc Savage in you know 1982? We will. So the the guys. Will, I, I don't want to give away. Uh, you know oh. what? Maybe I'll just tell you. Okay. Um, I'm debating. Whether to spoil because this it, is the thing that by, by here, issue three there'll be a hint. Here's I'll, here's the I'll problem that I have. Here's the problem that I have because DC did this way back in the eighties with oh, no, their Doc no. Savage property, and suddenly we're fast forward into nineteen eighty five, and Doc's got a got a son who's a spoiled douche. Yeah, yeah. I I liked the Denny O'Neill miniseries. I didn't mm-hmm. think it was perfect, but I liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, the ongoing that spun out of it it got too far from the concept for me. Right. Um, because for me, the core of the character is um, he's someone that works constantly to improve himself mentally and physically. Right. He doesn't lie. He doesn't kill. And he's devoted his entire existence and everything that he's able to produce or get his hands on to the pure pursuit of knowledge and justice. Um, roaming the world, fighting oppression, uh, uh, helping the innocent. And he gathers around him. Uh, a crew of able people that are able to help with that. Uh, it doesn't need to be – as soon as you get into soap opera dynamics mm-hmm. of the character interactions, you start getting too far away from the core of what that's about. Because you can have character tension like Monk and Ham, um, but it shouldn't become about that. That should be like kind of a, a relish on the side. Um, we will not – so – the answer actually is in Fear K. Um, oh, okay. And, and in fact, in Philip Jose Farmer's take on Fear K um, as to what goes on with Doc, um, why we're able to still have him later. Um, but one thing that, that we will be doing is he, he's, not, he's not immortal. He's not frozen in time. Um, he just, because of things that happened in Fear K and – later um he ages slower um mm-hmm. and we gradually see him age from uh the way he appeared on the original pulp covers and in the pulp illustrations right. into something more resembling the the kind of James Bama you know super heroic type excellent um as he ages um and there's a there's totally an in story explanation for it it i i hope it will it will work. I know that some people won't like it. Um, but I felt very strongly that like we've seen lots of attempts to to go back because basically Dent covered 1933 to 1949. That right. ground is pretty much done. Yeah. You know, um, the, the, the fan made chronologies over the course of the last few decades have mapped out to the date where, where Doc was at any given moment. Oh, I was going through some of those today, so. I mean, because, you know, like, let's say he shows up at the Empire State Building, never named. Right. But it is the Empire State Building. He shows up at the beginning of, of an adventure, and it's remarked that he's been off of the Fortress of Solitude for the last three weeks. Mm-hmm. So, where you know, they, slotting that in where it takes place in relationship to the other novels, and he was there, you know, from March 21st until the beginning of April. He was at the Fortress of Solitude, and then he came back and, you know, fought these snake people. Um. Yeah, so it I'm going to try as much as possible to honor everything that, that that Doc and company were in the 1930s and 40s and then find ways to take what works in later settings but make it something that would be more relatable to a contemporary audience. But it gives us the opportunity to tell subsequent stories at any point in that timeline. Mm-hmm. So if we wanted to tell a story where it's Doc versus the Nazis – you know, in the early forties, we can do so. If it's going to be him versus giant irradiated insects or whatever in the fifties, we also have that opportunity and it would just be, you know, monk and hammer a little bit longer in the tooth. And maybe there's some other kid who's joined the team, things like that. Do you ever read uh, atomic robo from red five comics? Have you, have you yes. read any of their stuff? Cause they kind of do that same thing where they're able to, they've plotted out this huge timeline and they can drop, uh, Robo and his companions anywhere and make that story work. So if they want to have Robo have coffee with Carl Sagan or get in a, get in a fight with uh, um, Bill Gates, you know, they can put that all in a story and it all makes sense. In fact, it, it, I, Atomic Robo is one of my favorite comics. Um, 
I adore it. Um, and it's almost always in my, when people ask, what are you reading? Mm-hmm. It almost always is at the top of my list of the things that I can remember that I'm reading that day. Um, it didn't occur to me that I was recreating the wheel that is, uh, you know, atomic robo and the Teslodyne Institute until after I'd finished my whole setup. I was like, Oh, this works just like a robo does. Well, but I mean, but it, it does th- this. I think, I think this is what works about talk savage though. He is the prototype. He and the shadow both are prototypes for everything that came after. So Batman, Superman, um, you know, uh, Captain America. Yeah. The fantastic four, even atomic robo all could probably point back to these two vectors for telling stories and these, the, the, the hero genre that we know of today or the action scientists or whatever that you want to call them. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, in my, in my head, it all devolves from it's, it's, it's exactly what you say. It's Doc Savage and shadow. Um, and sometimes mixed in different quantities because Batman is clearly a direct genetic descendant of the shadow, but Mm -hmm. he's got bits of Doc Savage in it. Um, and so that's, you know, the fact that I find myself writing both those characters at the, this point, um, is kind of bizarre. Um, do you, do you sit back and go, Oh, the irony. Well, it's just, yeah, no, I, I just can't question my existence or I, I come to the conclusion that <laughs> just poof in a puff of smoke. I, I think I'm just hallucinating my whole life and all, all the rest of you are just fig- figments of my imagination. Um, they're very different characters. And, and as much as I like the shadow, um, it's, it's always difficult to, he's at arm's length because it's difficult to relate to the shadow as a person, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of his responses or his motivations. I mean, he is an implacable foe of evil, weird adventure of the night. Um, you know, laughing maniacally while, uh, raining death upon evildoers. Right. Well, that's kind of hard for me personally to relate to. You know, I, I like I like it, um, but myself in that situation, I'm not sure those. That's what I would do. Um, whereas, what always appealed to me about Savage was I completely approve of his decisions in almost every circumstance. Like I get it. Um, if you know, he will always wound if he can. Um, doesn't kill if he can avoid it. Right. Um, and. You know, he views crime as a disease, mm-hmm. um, not as, you know, uh, some monolithic evil that has to be expunged, but as something that can be treated and cured. Um, well, you, you know, that, that's, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to bring up the, the crime college. Which yeah, I was going to I was going to get to that because that's the, you know, as a young kid, I didn't know about lobotomies. You know, I didn't, you know, my. uh Encyclopedia Encyclopedia Britannica didn't uh, go into depth about these kinds of things. Yeah. So when you hear the story about how Doc slips a little poker up somebody's uh, nostril, and you just go, okay, well he's tweaking their brains so that they don't uh, so that they don't commit the bad crimes anymore. But then you go and you find out that he's lobotomizing people. Well, they don't specifically say lobotomize. They, what no, do they think? don't. But I mean, you know, there's a there's a bit of hand waving. They talk about um, how he's found some gland that uh, secretes a thing mm-hmm. which causes antisocial tendencies, mm-hmm. and that what he does is he he fixes that um, through surgery. So, I, but um, I wonder how are you going to deal with this? Because I mean, this is a um, well, this, it's, if there it's was like, one black, if there was one black spot in Doc Savage's today, if Doc Savage were alive, even in the eighties, he would be going, "My God, what did I do?" I, it's definitely it's it's a complicated, nuanced thing, and it's something that I'm not shying away from. Um, and in fact, there's hints of it in my first issue, and in the Crime College and its implications actually turns out to be one of the big story threads that'll go through the this first arc. Um, because I think you can read it one, you can read it either way. Cause certainly, um, viewed as he's lobotomizing, you know, criminals, removing their free will. Right. Um, that's, that's troubling. Um, but there was a fantastic story published a few years ago. Let me see if I can find the name of the story. It's written by a guy named William Preston. Um, William Preston has written a series of novels, uh, short stories rather. Um, Featuring the old man, mm-hmm. who is a 
he's a, clearly an homage slash pastiche to Doc Savage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stories are fantastic. And there's one, I think it's called Clockworks is the one I'm thinking of. Um, but it's about, it's a, it's told from the perspective of someone that's going through that kind of crime college process. Okay. Um, and he approaches it slightly differently, um, with the benefit of a few more decades of science and medicine. Um, and it's essentially about curing someone of deep sociopathy, you know, like returning to them the ability to feel empathy. Ah, okay. Um, and viewed from that perspective, like it, you know, it is, it is a little troubling that he does this without ever alerting the authorities. No one knows. Uh, there's one story. I can't remember which one it was that it has the, it introduces the police detective who doesn't trust doc. Um, and, um, it might be fear. Okay. Anyway, there's some suspicion that he does this thing, but no one can prove it. Well, I know that, uh, I thought at one point the police, knew that he sent him to the to the crime college to be rehabilitated, I think was one of the phrases that I remember from my decades ago reading. And so it's kind of like the authorities knew what was going on. It's not like he packed the criminals up in the middle of the night and just shipped them off and, and no one heard from them again, right? No, that's exactly what happens. Oh, okay. Because um, I, I, I guess maybe I read it wrong then, because I thought that the authorities knew kind of what was going on and they trusted him enough to just say, do what you got to do. And you know maybe maybe in the later installments the, that changes, um, but earlier on the ones I've most recently reread, mm-hmm. um, there are rumors that that happens, um, but no one knows for sure. And Doc does do it in secret. Um, if the police are there when he apprehends a bad guy, the the bad guy gets t- turned over to the criminal justice system. Ah, right? okay. Um, Doc prefers not to do that so that they don't end up just rotting in jail. Mm-hmm. Instead, he secretly whisks them off to his secret facility, um, which is completely disguised so as to be unnoticeable from the surface. Um, it looks to be from the air or even from the nearby countryside, uh, just like a cabin. Um, and most of it is hidden, I think, behind a, a mountain or something, hidden, hidden inside of a mountain. And um, all of the the inmates and the staff, or the patients and the staff, as they're called, I think, um, hide whenever a plane flies over or anybody happens by. And it's a bunker designed to withstand an invasion in case anybody finds out about it. Wow. Um, so the, it's 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 a, a not entirely clear-cut and sterling uh, heroic act. And so it's yeah, something yeah. you're going to be playing around with. Wow. I, I, that's the, you know, when I, I think I read, I forget one of the uh, bits of, uh, that you were doing an interview with someone else. And I was like, wow, Crime College, this is going to be probably the most interesting aspect of this whole thing. Well, one thing that we, a thread that I set up in the first issue um, is, you know, if you, if you mount the criticism that the doc is, <clears throat> removing people's free will or, you know, impairing their free will by removing, removing from them the ability to have antisocial behavior. Um, He's affecting their brain in such a way that they're no longer capable of committing crimes. What would happen if someone is able to reverse engineer that process and engender and instill antisocial behavior in otherwise upstanding citizens? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a what what what's the real in pure mathematical terms? What's the moral difference? Um, and what does that mean for everybody around? So uh, the story that we're telling takes place um, it starts in 1933 and then continues on in roughly 10, 12 years increments. Um, and each issue will be a standalone adventure with threads that will build together to make a bigger tapestry as we go along. So right now, only six issue miniseries, nothing planned for ongoing right now. That, that it's eight, oh, um, eight, sorry. issues, eight issues in this initial story arc. And, uh, honestly, I don't know what they have planned. I think it more than likely will depend on how it does. Um, you know, if it sells well, I would imagine we'd be able to do more. Why? And I, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but why has it been that 
every time someone gets their hands on Doc Savage, whether it be Marvel or DC or Millennium or I think Dark Horse had it at one point. Mm-hmm. Why is it is are they just not able to satisfy Condé Nast's uh, uh, expectations of the property? Because it seems like they get them for a year, year and a half, and then it's gone again. You know, honestly, I don't know. Um, I, I my my impression has largely been that um, it's the same kind of market pressures that cause uh, so many things to be canceled before their time, mm-hmm. and that that decision likely is being made by the the licensee, by the publisher, right, rather than by the licensor. Okay. Okay. Um, I think the problem that. I think the problem that uh, the comics have had before gaining traction um, has been, and I mean this was with with nothing but respect for everyone that's come before, but I think that we have had uh, people that were really great at making comics that weren't necessarily Doc Savage fans, and also Doc Savage fans that weren't necessarily make, great at making comics, mm-hmm. um, and. It, it's been difficult to like get the stars to align such that someone whose kind of first job, first language was comics as a narrative, but who also really got and liked the character were working on it at the same time, if that makes sense. No, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, because it, it is oftentimes when we look at projects that are developed through passion from the creator because they have a love of that character or a love of that property – that they go in and they really do a lot of hard work to make it work right. And I really hope that this is a huge success. I mean, Dynamite's been doing very well with all of their mass pulp heroes, Green Hornet, Shadow, Spider, etc. I know some of those are going away and some of them are continuing. But uh, I, I really have high hopes for, for Doc Savage in this go-around. Well, if nothing else, I'll get to write <laughs> Doc Savage. And I'll get to, you know, just just the first... 22 page issue um which is structured as something that would be engaging for a longtime reader and fan but also would introduce all these characters and their personalities in their world to a new reader uh it was just a ridiculous amount of fun um so as with everything else on my bucket list that i've checked off one by one if i never get to do this again uh i will have a great time doing it the first time you know yeah that's great I guess one of the other questions and concerns that I have is that oftentimes Doc Savage is seen maybe by non-super fans mm-hmm. as, ha- as suffering the same problems as Superman. He's too good, he's too nice, and therefore he's boring. How do you address that? I mean, have you heard those same comments? Oh, sure. Um, and I, I don't understand them. I mean, I, I, get, I understand them. And I, I understand those words. Um, the dictionary definitions, I understand what they sure. mean in that order. Right. Um, you know, personally, both as a reader and as a writer, um, I've never found those characters boring in the slightest. Um, because if anything, they have, there's more restrictions on their, their, their choices of action because of their moral code. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's not as though like, well, you know, this X and Y character is a regular human guy uh, who exists in this morally gray universe. And therefore he's more compelling and interesting um, than someone that is maybe more of a physical and mental exemplar, but who lives by a very strict code. Right. Because there are paths of, there's paths of action not available to, to Clark Savage Jr. because of the the code that he lives by. Um, and so he has to find solutions that both address whatever the problem is, but also satisfies the very rigid self-imposed morality that he lives with. In much the same way that, you know, Superman has a similar kind of code, but he also has, um, you know, with Superman, the narrative concern is he's so powerful. How do you make something interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, and the trick there is you put him in a situation he can't fix by punching it. Um, you, you write a story that, um, uh, forces the character to be smart or to be clever, or come up with something unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think that's the challenge with Doc Savage is, you you know, you can't just throw him into, into an adventure and let him uh, uh, punch and kick and shoot his way out because that's not how the character functions. Right. So what do you think of this uh, news that Shane Black wants to do a Doc Savage movie? Um, I, I would see it if it happened. Um, you know, these days I'm I, – <clears throat> the farther away something gets from the medium in which it was born – the less interest I usually have in it these days. Mm, okay. um, uh, you know, pulps, the comics make sense to me because they're, they're pretty close cousins um, and they're serialized in much the same way. Right. Um, I guess you could do a doc Savage movie. I mean, I, I think you could obviously. Um, I'm just not sure if in the current box office climate, that the Doc Savage movie I would have in my head would be received well by big audiences. Sure. I, uh, I mean, I, I, I can see that. And not knowing what uh, Mr. Black has up his sleeve, I would imagine it's something in World War II, something somewhat aligned with James Bond meets Captain America. Yeah. And, you know, if, if something along those lines, um, I think it done well, could be good and interesting. Um you know, we've we've had so many good adaptations. I think I think the Rocketeer is a is a, is a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, the the uh, the Phantom was very watchable. But then we also get things like the Shadow film. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's always. I, I guess if you hear any hesitation in my voice, it's that <laughs> um, you know, I, I've Lucy has pulled that football away from me as a viewer so many times. Right. Um, that I'm hesitant to run charging at it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with lots of optimism. Um, but yeah, I mean, it'd be great if it happened. Because if nothing else, if if a big budget Doc Savage movie made to screens, um, we would see more interest in the original Lester Dent stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be easier to get or hand to people. Um, the original novels, um, we'd see reprints of the comics. It'd be that, that, uh, the NPR radio show you mentioned is really difficult to get a hold of. Um, well, if you know where to look, <laughs> well, you know, I, I really wanted to buy it. Um, yeah. it was, I, I wanted to buy, uh, like on iTunes or, or, right, Amazon right. or something. Um, cause the last thing I want to do is clutter up my life with more jewel cases and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it, it's not available in that form. Yeah. So. Uh, if a film led to that or some cool new Doc Savage merchandise, that'd be fantastic. Oh, yeah. Oh, there is a cool – I don't know if you've seen this because I – The new – the one-sixth uh, yes. scale action figure? Yes. Did you order it? Or just – no, I don't have 250 bucks. <laughs> there, but I, would... I, I went ahead and got the Shadow one, and then I'm I'm still waiting for the uh, for the Doc Savage one to arrive. So I cannot oh, so you wait. Ordered it. So oh, which, yeah, yeah. which are you going to use the Bama ray gun or the Steranko super machine pistol? No, I think I'm going to use the the Bama ray gun just because yeah. that you know that was the that was the Doc Savage that I was introduced to because I mean there's nothing like this you know rip shirt barrel chested man staring at you with this widow's peak to make yeah, you yeah. go what the hell is this about? Um, yeah. And then it was I mean you know I go in and out I don't I mean I'm not probably as a as a big a fan of, of Doc Savage as you are. So about that time when I was in college and really getting into studies, Doc Savage drifted away, and I really didn't know much more about his pulp history. The internet wasn't uh, really in existence, and, you know, I didn't go to conventions. And so years later, when I see the, uh, you know, the actual pulp covers where you have this, you know, guy with a comb over, I'm like, what is this? This is fascinating, too. So I really like, you know, from the, from the style standpoint, I like the original pulp covers of the hair, Mm-hmm. But I like the sci-fi stuff that Bama was putting into into the pictures. I get that. I, and in I fact, just, you know, the, everything because Steranko ran the Brotherhood of Bronze Doc Savage fan club in the seventies, mm-hmm. mm. or at least he contributed heavily to it. I'm not sure what the exact relationship was, um, but he made the membership badge. Oh, he cool. designed uh, a super machine pistol schematic, and there's. At least a couple of extant Steranko designs, um, and what's interesting to me is it, it it feels almost like it's one step past Bama, mm-hmm. not like it's better than, but like you, I think Bamhofer maybe I'm I'm, I'm misremembering the name of the original pulp artist, 
Um, but you had the original pulp design, then you had the Bama design in the 60s. Yeah. And then it feels in my head like in the 70s, it, it was more of a Storanko design, but only seen by the most hardcore fans who 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 signed up for these things. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't know any of this stuff existed, you know, and here's me living in the middle of Kansas, nowhere, and just being able to find these things and me being the only person that knew who or what Doc Savage was. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And then going to college, I remember walking to my radio station getting ready to do a Sunday morning shift and the overnight guy is sitting there with a pile of the, of the seventies reprints, just reading through and it's like, Oh yeah, I've got them all. Just love them. Just keep reading them. And so it's like finding people who are into doc savages to me, a very rare thing. Well, thanks to the internet, it's easier to find. Oh yeah. 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 I, I know at one point back in the, um, Oh, in the nineties, I forget who was doing these lithographs of the covers of the Bama covers. Mm-hmm. And I think they did six of, or yeah, maybe six of them. I was only able to afford four of them at the time, poor college kid. And those, <laughs> those are proudly displayed on my wall uh, today. And people are like, what's this? And it's like, Doc Savage, man, it's Doc Savage. Yeah. Here's what you need to tell Dynamite. Tell him that you need this one sixth uh, scale figure for ah, reference, for research. for research and reference. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, the, the, the Captain Action folks sent me uh, a Captain Action and Dr. Evil when I started working on Codename Action. Oh, cool. So um, they're proudly displayed in my office. I'll have to, you know, I'll try. I'm not holding my breath. It's much more expensive. Oh, yeah, that is, they are pretty expensive. So you had mentioned a moment ago about what if someone were to infuse evil into people or bring out the evil in people? Are we talking John Sunlight? No, Um, because something I feel very strongly about uh, as as a fan is that it's a mistake. It's always been a mistake, I think, to too often go back to the existing wells. Right. Um, because, and, and this is something that I'm not sure Dynamite was completely aware of. And we originally started having our conference calls about Doc Savage. Um, but I said, you know, there's, there's, what is it, 181 mm-hmm. um, uh, recorded adventures right. uh, in prose. Uh, there were a few, a few radio adaptations and uh, original stuff as well. Um, and Doc never ch- faced the same villain twice with one exception. Mm-hmm. And that guy came back one additional time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the hallmarks of the character is he doesn't have an arch nemesis. Right. Um, because having an arch nemesis would mean that Doc had failed. Uh, if there was someone out there who was consistently mounting schemes, uh, the Doc would have to frustrate um, it would mean that Doc wasn't doing his job. He wasn't solving that problem. And what he does, is he shows up, finds a solution to a problem, and fixes it um, with a minimum of life lost. And if anything, if hopefully, in his eyes at least, saving and redeeming the villain in some way. Um, and so when we when we were originally talking about the the how what we would do and the outline. I was pretty insistent that I didn't want to bring back any old villains mm-hmm. um, because that would be a failure on Doc's part. Sure. Um, there, which is not to say that we won't have characters that will show up at different times and different capacities. Um, but no, no, no John Sunlight. As much as I think that character is fantastic, you, I think he's, he's too often the go-to. Do you buy into that, uh, that theory that, uh, that it's it's his son. It's his son. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, the, the, you know, you could. I don't think that's what Farmer intended. Um, well, and that's why you know when you go down that rabbit hole of of people that have laid out the exact timeline, it's like, well, Doc Savage was here in 1918, and you know, this many years later, and therefore, you know, he's had this relationship with so and so, so therefore, it proves that John Sunlight is his son. You know it. It, I think it would make a compelling character dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's not a whole lot to be gained from exploring it. Because as I said, like I think the two appearances of John Sunlight, and I discount any others in comics, <laughs> um, uh, are perfect for what they are as they are. Um, and if it, you know, in that kind of um, – that's more – literary speculation like a critic right. would, like like i i'm gonna read this shakespeare play and trying to like figure out something unspoken in the text that no one's ever noticed before mm-hmm. and i think that's really interesting i i think as as a as a as a fan and a reader and a critic 
those kinds of speculations are endlessly fascinating to me. Um, I think that creatively, there's not a lot to be gained from revisiting that. Okay. Are you uh, are you a fan of the sci-fi Doc Savage tales or more of the underworld mob boss tales? I guess the ones that I like are always the ones where it's, you know, here is this uh, dinosaur running around down. Yeah, this is not a real yeah. one, I don't think. But, you know, dinosaur yeah. running around downtown and you find out it's just the mob goofing around to scare people away and detract people from what what they're really doing. Well, and, you know, ultimately, uh, uh, Doc and company are the original progenitors of uh, Scooby-Doo and the Mystery Incorporated. <laughs> because aside from uh, Up From the Earth's Core, or whatever the last one was, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there is nothing supernatural in this world. Right. There, there might be things that strain credulity, but have a rational explanation. Yeah, it's some scientist or somebody doing that. Yeah. And, yeah, I, the, I, think, I think that Dent was at his best um, when... The way, the, exactly as you say, there is some big, weird, compelling visual menace that's unexplainable. Um, and then Doc and company have to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, you know, very clearly, um, whatever that threat is, has a good visual hook. It couldn't possibly be real. And at the end, it's revealed that no, in fact, um, uh, it was this weird sciencey thing that some crooks had done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doc fixes it. Yeah, yeah. What uh, What are your? Uh, who are the artists working on on this series with you? I, I saw Alex Ross is providing one of the covers. Um, Alex Ross is doing covers on each issue, and I think John Cassidy is doing variants. Okay. And um, there's a third one that was in the press release, and I cannot for the life of me remember it. Okay. Um, the artist. It was it was a long process. One of the reasons why uh, it's only just now being announced, um, even though we've talked about it for months, is it took them a long time to find an artist that they thought worked. Um, there were lots of talented artists that they were talking to or talking about at least, um, who for whatever reason just weren't weren't a good fit. Um, and what they ended up with uh, is a, a Brazilian woman named uh, Bilquis Evely. Mm. I think I'm pronouncing your name right. B i l q u i s e v e l y, and I think that she's got a really interesting style. It's a very, <clears throat> you know, the first issue that I've seen, she's about halfway through it, um, and it feels period. It feels you know mid 1933. Oh, excellent. Um, and really great backgrounds, and the, I love the layouts and everything, and. Um, yeah, then as we go forward, we'll, we'll gradually move those characters into successive eras. The next issue takes place in 1949, just after the last published Doc Savage adventure. Cool. And then, uh, so it goes all the way, will it go all the way up to modern time, or does it come almost close to the modern time? Uh, yeah, we end, up by two, we end up at 2013 by the end. Okay, cool. So this comes out in December. I mean, this you last time we talked on the show... You were like, well, they're holding off the announcement. They're holding off the announcement. And then all of a sudden over the weekend, pow, that well, dropped. I, what, I, what I kept pointing out, um, uh, you know, this, the finding the right artist was a process that, that took several months. Mm-hmm. Um, but since the beginning of this year, I would just uh, occasionally point out to the good folks at Dynamite that 2013 marks the 80th anniversary of the first appearance of Doc Savage. Cool. Uh, in 1933 and that there was a nice symmetry to starting it this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if nothing else, let's at least get an issue out, you know, so that the, it lands the debut in the 80th anniversary year. And, uh, so sure enough, it's coming out like in mid December. That'll be so awesome. I think that the, 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 the wire was just passing. This, this is a great Christmas gift for a lot of people, I think. Well, hopefully if it doesn't disappoint. So. Well, you know, I don't know, I, and and I'm not trying to blow smoke up your butt or, or anything like that, but, um, you know, you really are a solid writer, and any time that you've touched these pulp characters, uh, Superman, uh, obviously your Clockwork Storybook stuff, it's all been wonderful stuff. So when people stick with with you through a series, they end up coming out really pleased at the end. You know, this was a good read. This was an enjoyable experience. Masks, I think is probably the biggest, uh, most recent thing uh, that people are just still going gaga over. 
Um, and so, you know, you should, you should, uh, I think this will do well. I really do. Well, that, that's very flattering you to say. And I, 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 you know, I definitely hope so. I'm, I'm, I'm having a really good time at it and I hope that people like it, but you know, with, you know, I come from, from fandom as mm-hmm. a fan mm-hmm. and I know that you would drive yourself insane trying to please every fan. Right. Um, right. because you know, the, the, each of us has the cherished version of that thing in our head, mm-hmm. um, our, per, our personal canon or whatever. And anytime you approach something that has that kind of following or that kind of long history, you're going to really please people whose personal interpretation agrees with yours. And you will infuriate those uh, that it doesn't. Oh, I'm so, I, yeah. Believe me. What's been going on in one of our podcasts lately, that's the exact same thing. Yeah. So I I fully anticipate that there will be people, you know, sharpening knives, calling from a bluff. (laughs) Uh, I I hope that they are outnumbered by those that say this is the Doc Savage they want to read. Sure. And I'm guessing that Dynamite has the Doc Savage license for longer than just the, the eight issues. And I know a couple of people have already chimed in on Twitter. Are we going to see an, uh, a masks too that features doc savage in some way you know he doesn't wear a mask yeah and i know <laughs> but, and i know that's uh, you had said that before and again but for people that are still wondering oh does this mean that uh doc savage and and the shadow get a meet finally or or the spider or green hornet you're gonna pretty much uh shoot that out of the water well no i mean i think that there's lots of interesting storytelling possibilities putting Doc in in uh, interaction and opposition with any number of those characters. Mm-hmm. But like the core of masks was the masked Avenger idea. Um, and Doc is a different type of character. So I definitely wanted to at least include a nod that in my head he existed in that world, um, which is why in one issue, when they're infiltrating the Empire State Building from uh, – the the Zeppelin mooring post. Mm-hmm. The shadow makes an offhand reference to um, the resident of the penthouse who's currently out of the country. <laughs> and I'm sure somebody has slid that right into a particular timeline. Yeah, sure. <laughs> he, he was at, he was at the Fort of Solitude. <laughs> there you go. Uh, what else is going on? What what other books are you currently working on uh, for Dynamite? And then also with uh, Monkey Brain, you've got some stuff coming out. Uh, so, uh, Dynamite, this week I'm writing The Shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll probably need to do another Codename Action script pretty soon, which Codename Action, the first issue came out, I guess, a week last or two week? ago. Yeah, last week, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Sounds right. Um, and Doc Savage, of course. And then uh, Dennis Culver and I are still doing Edison Rex at Monkey Brain. And uh, Scott Kowalchuk and I have launched a book recently called The Mysterious Strangers at Oni which is about um, 60s super spies with superpowers who fight supernatural menace. And the first two issues are currently out. And the first one is the the free comic day version of it is available for free on Comixology. Excellent. Good, good, good stuff. Well, Chris, I want to invite you back uh, in December. I know that's a terrible time of the year for people, but as soon as that first issue comes out, I'd like to sit down and just do a page for page talk through with you. Sure. Kind of like a commentary track. I would be all for that. All right, man. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I know you're busy. I think this is great news about Doc Savage. I think for Doc Savage fans, this is going to be excellent. And I'm glad that you're the one uh, behind the wheel. Well, thanks, man. I'll try not to disappoint. All right. Take care. Yeah. Once again, thanks to Chris for being a part of Conversations with Major Spoilers. I'm really going to work at trying to get him back in December so we can do a uh, commentary track for the uh, for the Doc Savage comic. I can't wait for that. Before we get out of here today, I really want to take a moment and thank every one of you for what you've done to make Major Spoilers where it is. Uh, so many comments, so many thoughts, so many suggestions. I love reading the uh, the Twitter uh, comments that you send our way, the comments that you post over at Majorspoilers.com website. I'm hoping that what we're doing is bringing something enjoyable to you and really from uh, from my perspective and really from everyone here at Major Spoilers, we enjoy creating content Uh, for you. And we want to continue to do that uh, for a long time. If you want to find out more and how you can help us uh, do more, head over to Majorspoilers.com. I'm not going to make a big commercial out of this, but I do want to thank you for taking the time and uh, and sharing uh, your love for comics and pop culture and all the goodness 
uh, with your friends. If you would just take a moment and pass this along to a friend, this episode or any of the episodes that we do, any of the shows that we do, uh, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you and have a great week. Uh, We will talk with you next week again. Don't forget, we've still got a few shows coming out this week, including the next installment of Critical Hit. You can find all that over at the Major Spoilers uh, Podcast Network Master Feed. It's there on iTunes. You can find our shows on on, uh, Stitcher. Uh, They're now officially on Stitcher. Uh, you can get our RSS feeds, so many shows, so many great content, uh, so much great content at Majorspoilers.com. And it's all because of your support and your requests. And we've got more great things to come. So until next time, remember, we know that you love comics, and we do too. And we will talk with you soon. Mm-hmm.